0: Thanks for tuning into the For Love of the Game podcast, where we uncover the most cherished stories of America's favorite pastime. Woven into the DNA of our country are tales from our backyards and sandlots, summer leagues to the big leagues. Every fan has a personal connection, a memory, resonating in each of us. It takes us on a journey to a time long forgotten, or a moment in our youth. That first time we heard the crack of the bat, the roar of the crowd, the smell of the fresh cut grass. And these cherished recollections sit there in the back of our minds beckoning us back to the game that we know and love, our reason to come back home, our reason for our love of the game. Joining us today is the author of Our Team, The Epic Story of Four Men in the World Series That Changed Baseball, Mr. Luke Eplin. Luke, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, first off, I just want to say again, you know, how awesome uh, this book was. And uh, you just wove the the lives of, of these four guys, you know, Bill Veck, Larry Doby, Satchel Page, and, and Bob Feller seamlessly. And, and it really, to me, read almost like a novel. And so uh, tremendous work. And we'll we'll take a deeper dive into the book here in a minute. But I always love to learn about the guest's own personal baseball background. So you know, where, where does your love for the game come from? Who, who introduced you to
1: baseball? My love from the game comes from my father, pure, uh, pure and simple. He is the biggest fan of the St. Louis Cardinals that I've ever met. Um, I grew up around the St. Louis area about maybe uh, an hour away from the city My dad had season tickets since before I was born, so I grew up maybe going to 10 or so games a year. But my dad always had a portable radio with him wherever he was. He could have been at the store. He could have been at his workplace, or he could have even been at my high school graduation ceremony, which coincided with the Cardinal game. He always had sort of one ear attuned to what the Cardinals were doing, and he continues to do so to the day. And so the voices of Jack Buck and Mike Shannon on KMOX radio from St. Louis announcing the St. Louis Cardinals game was really the background noise of my childhood. It was destined for me to become a baseball fan. Yeah, no, it doesn't
0: get much better than that. That's such such a classic tale. Um, I think baseball and radio were a marriage that was meant to be, you know, it just, sometimes I'll even shut off the TV and just listen to the radio and it, you just, you know, picture yourself there and makes it 10 times better. So being that, you know, you're a Cardinals
1: fan, who were some of your favorite players growing up? Well, I can still, some of my earliest memories are of Ozzie Smith, the great Cardinals shortstop um, through in the sort of, late 80s, whenever I started gaining memories of, of the team, he was still doing backflips before every game uh, that the Cardinals played at home. He would later have to sort of cur- curtail that as he got older, he would do it only on select occasions, but before every home game, he would sort of run out onto the field and do a backflip. And for a child, that was the most exciting thing that you could, that you could see. And so Ozzie Smith was a huge, um, was a huge uh, person for me growing up. And then I, you know, I mean, Cardinal baseball is so fortunate and blessed by just really good teams. Um, there was a little bit of a drought in the early 90s when I was a kid, but. Really, I mean, I, you went through the McGuire area era, then the Pujols era, and now we're in the sort of Yadier Molina, Adam Wainwright era. I mean, it's it's just a franchise blessed by fortune in a city that is still sort of baseball craze. Baseball is the number one sport in St. Louis um, above all others, and you don't see that often in a lot of other cities. And so um, it, it's just a wonderful place to be a fan.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And that's that's one stadium I, I would love to, to get to here. In the near future, but it, the Cardinals, you know, in St. Louis, is such a storied franchise—from Stan the Man to Bob Gibson, like you said, to, to Ozzie Smith, to Halls and Wayno and Yachty today. Uh, definitely a lot of a lot of fun memories, I'm sure. The, is there any in particular, you know,
1: ballpark memory or fan moment that that sticks out in your mind? Well, I was there the day that Mark McGuire hit his 61st home run to tie Roger Maris's record. And I know that that's become a little bit tainted as the time goes by. But at the time, it was wonderfully exciting. And Roger Maris's family was seated at the ballpark. And McGuire went over to them as soon as he hit the home run and sort of gave them big uh, hugs. And so it was a very emotional moment. And... uh, Yeah, at the time, it seemed like the most exciting uh, thing that could have happened in sports. Um, I I moved to New York City after college, and I was very fortunate in 2006 to capture some of the games or to go to some of the games of the Cardinals-Mets playoff series. This is the one where Adam Wainwright froze Carlos Beltran with a curveball at the end of the series. I wasn't at that game, but I was at a game, I think it was game two, where The Mets just jumped out to a commanding lead. The Cardinals kept chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And so the sort of great reserve uh, infielder from Japan that the Cardinals had at the time, hit a very unlikely home run that put the Cardinals ahead. And it was the only time that I've ever worn Cardinal gear in another stadium that I feared for my life. The Mets fans were just so irate with me for for being there. Um, It was a really disappointing series for the Mets. They they had that team with Jose Reyes and David Wright and all these other great people, Carlos Beltran, and they just simply couldn't get past the Cardinals. Um, Probably, though, my favorite memory of the Cardinals was of Game 6 of 2011 World Series. This is the one where the Cardinals were down to their last strike twice and came back and ended up winning, mainly on David Fries' the great third baseman, his heroics. My dad and my brother-in-law were in the stands that game in St. Louis. They were in the very upper right corner of Bush Stadium. I was in New York watching it. And when the Cardinals went down, I think, three going into the eighth, I decided it was maybe around midnight in the Eastern time, and I thought, I'm just going to turn this game off. I don't want to see the Texas Rangers celebrate. But then I thought, well, my dad and my brother-in-law are there. I might as well just watch it till the end. And for like an hour afterwards, we just kept texting each other exclamation points because it was one of the most unlikely things that you could ever see. And so the Cardinals, I think that one of the more challenging aspects of doing this book on the cleveland indians now the cleveland guardians was that the cleveland guardians are, are a franchise that are cursed they seem to lose games that they should win they seem to lose world series when which they're ahead towards the very end they uh, are sort of Champions and, and bursting out of the gate, and then sort of sputtering at the end. And the Cardinals are the opposite. They are completely blessed by fortune. They're they're winning World Series they shouldn't, whether it's 2011 or 1964. They are, you know, just squeaking into the playoffs in very unlikely fashion. They are beating teams that they shouldn't beat, such as the 2006 Mets. Um, and so it's a very different mindset that you have to put yourself. Into Because the Cardinal fans expect to win and sort of have a, an entitled attitude. And Cleveland Indians fans um, expect to lose and have this sort of fatalistic viewpoint. And so getting slipping into Indians fandom was actually tough for me as a Cardinals fan.
0: Well, I bet. Yeah, because all those World Series that you mentioned and uh, the, 64, the 64 series, there's also another, another good book, October 1964, that kind of chronicles that season. Uh, yeah. That's one that I remember reading. That that really got me trapped in, into baseball history, so so to speak, and um, just looking up, you know, all the all-time greats. But um, yeah, the the Cleveland fan base has definitely had it rough, and uh, you know, in in the book, you, you kind of talk about, you know, it's I kind of got a sense they're not the lovable losers like the Chicago Cubs were mm-hmm. or had been. It was almost just this like angst and disgust with the fan base. Yeah, like you said, they're gonna start off hot. Uh, and then just totally, you know, falter in the second half. But um, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny. And speaking of old championships, the only time that I can recall really, uh, I guess, hearing about the '48 World Series w- with the Indians is when I when I watched uh, Major League, the <laughs> the movie Major League. You know, when they're going back in time to the the glory days, the heyday, and they have that newspaper clipping. In the beginning, you know, the 48 champs, and then they just start to show that demise throughout, you know, the, the rest of time and, and leading up to, to that season. But what really attracted you to the 1948 season?
1: Um so it's it is it it is intertwined with me being from St. Louis. Um as you might know. St. Louis used to have two major league baseball teams. They had the St. Louis Cardinals who have generally been pretty good. And then they used to have a team called the St. Louis Browns who were pretty terrible. They, uh, they were the sort of sad sacks of major league baseball. They eventually left St. Louis in the mid fifties and became the Baltimore Orioles. But my grandpa on my dad's side grew up as a big St. Louis Browns fan. He would attend their games quite a bit. He, um, he was 4F during the war and worked in St. Louis at an airport factory instead, and used to hop streetcars and watch the Browns play. And so I grew up hearing stories about the Browns and knowing more about them than a lot of people my age from St. Louis did, because they'd been gone decades after I was, I was born. Um, and my grandpa would tell me about this man named Bill Vec, who was the last owner of the Browns. And he, in order to sort of excite in uh, Brown's fandom and take away fans from the St. Louis Cardinals would do just wild stunts. He brought a little person to bat one time. He had fans manage from the grandstands. He would shoot off fireworks, give away crazy giveaways, all these sorts of things. And I remember thinking that Bill Vec is such a larger than life person that he would be a perfect protagonist for a book. And so... um, I really wanted to write a book about Beck and the Browns, and it was only while researching vec that I recognized that all these giveaways and all the sort of fan-friendly thing that Beck did was not the most interesting thing about him. The most interesting thing about him was that he had owned the Cleveland Indians before he owned the Browns, and not only won a World Series, but became the first integrated Team in the American League. He was the one who signed black players on the Indians before any other club in, in the American League. And I thought to myself, I didn't even know that. And if someone like me, who grew up sort of steeped in baseball, wasn't aware of Bill Vec and Larry Doby, the first black player in the American League, then there had to have been so many other people that also didn't. And so that set me on the path to, to, to figuring out more about the second team in Major League Baseball to integrate.
0: No, that that's a really interesting point you make too, and and that's something that I didn't realize in, until reading this story either. I I always knew Vec is the Chicago White Sox, so yeah. you know he had a, a couple of, of past lives friend and, and uh, franchises before that too. And you know this story has so many different elements uh, in it. I, I like to, I guess, kind of. It almost made me think of feel the dreams 42 and the greatest showman all wrapped into one you know so yeah. and and it's interesting because you, you set the table really well it's it's not just about the singular 48 season you kind of give some introspective into these these guys lives before that season so i'm sure there's a lot of research that had to go into it so what what was that research process like for you and um, you know, were there any little uh, cool tidbits or cool experiences that um, that happened along the way?
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it was an interesting book to research because I actually didn't start off thinking it was going to be about 1948. I started off with the four people. I thought you had Bill Beck and Larry Doby and then you had Bob Feller and Satchel Page. And I thought to myself that if you put these four characters together, you have two white men and two black men. And they each seemed to represent a different facet of the inter- integration experience. You had sort of the more progressive view with Beck, the more traditional view with Feller. And then you had two different generations of the Negro League and Doby and Page. And so I thought that if you put those people in tension with each other, you could really draw out pretty much every angle of the integration experience at the time. Um, unfortunately, everybody on the Cleveland Indians from 1948 has passed away. Um, at the time that I was researching the book, which was a couple of years ago now, there was one person who was still alive. His name was Eddie Robinson. He was the first baseman for the, the Indians. And I did get to spend an entire weekend with him and sort of talk about um, how he viewed integration, what it was like uh, being with Beck and Page and Feller and things like that. And so that was a real amazing thing. And Eddie Robinson was 98 at the time. And he was telling me stories about seeing Babe Ruth play. And so it was just a real privilege to get to talk to somebody of that generation. Um, But because so many of the people had passed away, a lot of the research was just conducted in archival sort of things. Uh, Cleveland had four newspapers at the time. Um, I read every single issue of each newspaper from 1946 to 1948, just to sort of absorb the atmosphere of Cleveland at the time. And so that took... Oh, God, I don't even know, a long time. And, um, you know, just tried to talk to as many people in their 90s as I could, because those would have been the people that remembered the 1948 season. And so there were a couple of baseball players who were still alive. Carl Erskine was somebody I, I talked to. I talked to a guy named Chuck Stevens, who was the very first batter to face Satchel Page in Major League Baseball. Um, and uh, just, sort of random Clevelanders who remembered the 48 team. And so anything I could do to sort of give a sense of the atmosphere of both the clubhouse and the city at the time. No, oh, that's pretty cool. And the, the one cool thing about baseball too, it's
0: it's so generational and you, and you just tell me about Eddie Robinson and, and being able, you know, to connect with him to learn about the story you're writing, but then even the greats before that, that he was watching. That, that's one cool thing that I love about baseball and, and sports in general too um, w- was there anything really eye opening for you uh, while you you were writing the book or doing the research? you know, anything that that you didn't know
1: that that really stood out to you? There was so much I didn't know. Um, I think that there I think that I had an advantage over somebody who would have been from Cleveland because I imagine that a lot of Indians slash guardians fans, would grow up hearing the story of the 1948 World Series team because that is the last team in Cleveland to have won a World Series. So a lot of the sorts of things like Satchel Paige's sudden emergence in midseason, Bob Feller's uh, sort of origin story, how he got to the major leagues, um, would have been sort of old hat to them and maybe not as exciting. I found everything to be just incredible. I think that just the fact that Larry Doby played – A game in the Negro Leagues for the Newark Eagles boarded a train one night and then ended up on the Cleveland Indians the very next day is extraordinary. I mean, it's it's just amazing to imagine him going from the Negro Leagues, to the major leagues literally overnight. Um, And I also just because there were so many newspapers then there, the reporting, this is in an age before television. So the reporting is very vivid. And you have these great scenes of Larry Doby like in the train station waiting to go, waiting to board the train that will take him to an entirely new life in the major leagues. And just sort of being able to sit with him in that moment and sort of feel that he's not feeling elation but feeling anxiety, that he's feeling like he's coming into someplace unknown and scary is a really interesting thing to to ponder. He's not sort of triumphant. He's he's recognizing how difficult this is going to be. Um, and so just the, the whole sort of character of Larry Doby, who I think, unfortunately, gets a little bit lost in Major League Baseball history. Um, seeing what he went through and seeing his very different journey to the major leagues from um, Jackie Robinson or Satchel Page or pretty much anybody. Um, was extraordinary. I, I, I think he's one of the most fascinating figures in baseball based on what he had to go through. And unfortunately, his narrative has been a little bit lost. Yeah. And I'd love to dive a little bit
0: deeper in, into, into Dobie, too. You mentioned his path to the majors was completely different than, than even Jackie Robinson, right? Yeah. Uh, Here Jackie got to play uh, in the minor leagues, kind of get his feet wet a little bit and before he, he went and played for the Dodgers. And like you said, Doby one night he's playing for the Eagles, takes a train ride, and then he's playing for the Indians. And uh, you even allude to it in the book that that kind of in hindsight is like, yeah, that probably wasn't the best approach. But um, can you just talk about some of the different struggles that uh, Larry faced and you know maybe why it was almost more important that he succeeded you know, in, in his role?
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot there. Um, Jackie Robinson was somebody who was much older than Larry Doby. Doby, he was five years older. Uh, He had been a star in college for UCLA. So he was he had a national profile. So both black and white fans would have if they didn't know who he was, they would at least have heard of him. Um, So and he was also used to sort of being in the spotlight based on all the attention he got at, at UCLA. Um, Branch Rickey, who eventually signed Jackie Robinson, believed that that there would need to be sort of a transitional period where Robinson could both adjust to all white clubhouses and his white teammates could adjust to the idea of integration. And so everybody could have a chance to sort of, you know, get used to this idea. So Robinson spent an entire spring training, an entire minor league season and an entire other spring training, 18 months total. Uh, Of sort of preparatory time before he actually debuted for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And so a lot of players at the time felt like Robinson had gone through the minors, earned his keep. And as long as he sort of, you know, made well in the majors, which he kind of did right away, then he belonged there. Larry Doby had the opposite experience. Bill Vec was somebody who grew up in Chicago, which at the time was kind of the nerve center of the Negro League. He went to many Negro League uh, games. He sort of recognized the, the greatness of these players. And he believed, unlike a lot of executives and players at the time, that the best Negro League players were not only Major League worthy, but were going to be Major League stars. He really He really saw them for what they were. And so he thought that if somebody like Larry Doby, who in 1947 was just tearing up the Negro Leagues, he thought that Larry Doby was ready to go into the Negro Leagues right away. And then if you put Doby into the minor leagues, it was only going to put additional pressure on him. Uh, you know, he just thought that you sort of rip the Band-Aid off. Maybe he's going to have a rough sort of week or two adjusting, but then he'll get over it because he's such a great player. Um, and so that was his strategy. And Doby comes – literally plays a game for the Eagles one day, boards a train, is on the Indians the next day. And it is a tremendous shock to Doby's system. Doby says that in his first 10 games on the Indians, he can't stop his teeth from chattering. The Indians' teammates are rather cold to him. They don't think that he's earned his place there. They don't like the idea of losing playing time to somebody that they don't think belongs. Nobody has gotten used to the idea of integration. Doby himself is dealing with having to stay in separate hotels, loneliness, being on the road, just kind of isolated, and the camaraderie that he felt on the Eagles is just totally absent on the Indians. And unlike Robinson, who you know is twenty-eight, a little bit older, Dobie is quite young, and so he, uh, you know, he is 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 just not sort of as equipped to deal with the the sort of you know, slings and arrows of, of integration that is happening. And also, I think that Robinson played in New York, which was the media capital of the world. And so everything he did was sort of documented. The reporters were trailing him. Doby, whenever it was sort of found that he wasn't going to get a lot of playing time, the press kind of abandoned him. And so, you know, he was dealing with the exact same things that Robinson was dealing with, but under a much lesser spotlight and without the sort of support system that Robinson had around him. And so Doby would claim later on in life that he thought that perhaps he even had it harder than Jackie Robinson did. Yeah.
0: No, I remember you, you mentioning kind of, you know, if Dobie succeeded, that meant that you know the Negro League players w- would stick. So he, he almost had even you know more weight on his shoulders. And there's one part in, in the story you mentioned, just the the fact that like the isolation that he went through, and that's something, you know, I as playing ball throughout the years, you join a new team, you know, before you really get to know anyone, you, you sort of feel that right. As a freshman in college, wherever you might be, but you know, you just, uh, I guess even more so with, you know, being isolated, couldn't one stay with the team on the road in the hotels, even at home. And, uh, yeah, like you said, the, the loss of camaraderie, definitely. Uh, I, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. Um, in
1: fact, uh, I mean, Jackie Robinson, because he succeeded right away in the major leagues and because Larry Doby struggled. And then a few other players came up after Doby, such as uh, uh, Willard Brown, Hank Thompson, people like this, they too struggled. There was this sort of narrative that began to form that Jackie Robinson was simply exceptional, that he was already, it was already known that he was an exceptional athlete, but perhaps there weren't any others in the Negro leagues. And even Bill Veck, Starts talking like this. He starts saying, well, maybe, you know, we're going to need to be another generation before we get players of Jackie Robinson's caliber. So whenever Larry Doby turns it around in 1948 and has this tremendous season that really propels the Indians into the World Series, that just totally destroyed that narrative and showed that if you have patience for these Negro League players as they adjust to a new league and to all the sorts of things that come along with that league, including abuse, that you could be rewarded with a superstar who's going to help take you to the next level. And so that's why a lot of people thought that Larry Doby's turnaround in 1948 was tremendously meaningful for opening up the the further clubs from signing
0: black players. And he was definitely a maverick in in his own right. And I think really you know, the, the four characters in, in this book were all mavericks in, in their own right. And there were two relationships that really stood out to me while I was reading. The first one is Satchel Paige and Bob Feller, you know, two of greatest pitchers of all time and probably of, of their generation, but, you know, in black baseball and in white baseball. But as you read uh, the two sort of really need each other to, to hit that level. Can you talk about their relationship, you know, through the barnstorming and then eventually as teammates?
1: Yeah. These are two individuals who really knew how to sell themselves quite well. They sort of recognized the power of their name and their origin story, and they used it to sort of cash in at every chance that they could. Um, I think it's no mistake that they both wrote more than one autobiography in their lifetime. Like they used their story as a form of currency and sort of understood ways to develop fan bases and to make money off of who they were. They were some of the most entrepreneurial men you could ever imagine. And at that time in baseball, of course, it was segregated whenever Bob Feller came in in 1936. And so a lot of players after the season ended, but before the cold weather really settled in, would take about a month or so to sort of do what was known as barnstorming, where they would travel around to cities across the U.S. that did not have major league clubs and so did not get the really chance. The fans there didn't get a chance to see major league players. So they would play there, sort of, you know, put on a show for the fans and collect the gate money that would sort of supplement their incomes for that year. Um, It. you know, Satchel Paige and, and Bob Feller were expert at doing this. And because these games in barnstorming tour were not subject to Major League regulations, they could do things that you couldn't do in a Major League game. Namely, you could have white players play against black players. And so Bob Feller and Satchel Paige recognized that they were the two best pitchers of their generation, the best white pitcher and the best black pitcher. And they knew that if they advertised these barnstorming games as Feller versus Paige, that they would sort of just draw both white fans and black fans by the thousands and just thus sort of, you know, uh, increase their own paychecks. Um, And so they used each other in different ways. Bob Feller was the first professional athlete to incorporate himself. He really, he put on these elaborate barnstorming tours in which he sunk a considerable portion of his money and he needed Central Page as a rival in order to bring the fans out. Because if not, he was in trouble. He could have he could have gone bankrupt um, if if these these tours ended up being a bust. But if you advertise Page versus Feller every day, you were going to be guaranteed to get the money you would need. And Page at that time was quite older. He was in his 40s whenever he was really doing these big barnstorming tours, and a lot of major league. Uh, executives thought he was much too old to be in Major League Baseball. He was being bypassed for people like Doby, who was in his early 20s, Jackie Robinson in his, in his middle 20s. And so Page used these these tours against Bob Feller in which he pitched against Major League players to show that he still has it, that he can beat not only Major League players, but the best Major League pitcher at that time. And so really I think that if Page had not done these barnstorming tours with with Feller, he might not have gotten a shot. To go into the major leagues, this was really a proving ground for him at the time of integration. Yeah, and it was it was really
0: interesting too. And they became teammates. It was almost you know a roller coaster when when Page was going well, Feller wasn't, and back and yeah. forth, you know, kind of throughout that whole season. And uh, the other uh, relationship that stood out to me uh, was really Bill, Bill Vec and the fans, and specifically when he got to Cleveland. The Cleveland fans, who ultimately, uh, you know, as, as folks will read, kind of had a say in <laughs> in some of the decisions that were made and and how the team was run. And can you talk about vex uh, uh, love affair with the with the city of Cleveland?
1: So Bill Vec is known for, you know, I think he's still the best known for the ways that he courted. Fans. He came into Cleveland in 1946, the year after the war, and saw that the Indians had been very poorly attended to marketing wise. There was sort of no effort to reach out to the fans, very little effort to make the fans, to entertain the fans, to keep the stadium clean, do all these sorts of things that we now take for granted at a baseball game. And so Vec wanted to quickly show that he was looking out for people. Um, in the 1946 season, he just put on a show he he would shoot off fireworks he hired clowns as coaches he hired stuntmen to entertain people before games people that would hang upside down by their ankles and hit baseballs that would tool around the outfield in a jeep trying to catch fly balls i mean just wild sorts of stuff he literally put on a circus one day with like jugglers and bullwhip people like it was just kind of anything goes to 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 entertain Fans. He was one of the sort of pioneers in in adding music in between innings to make sure that fans interested in Wayne. And at the time, a lot of executives, people that that were in his position, really thought that that was taking away the dignity of the great American game, the American pastime, the national pastime. Um, And Vec just had no time for them. Vec really, he thought that you could have competitive play on the field and entertaining side shows before games and between innings and that these things didn't have to be in tension with each other they could coexist and not only could they coexist but they could cultivate a much broader fan base than you normally would be able to do like the way that the indians were marketed before vec was just for pure baseball fans People that loved a baseball game and did not mind just kind of going to a game and sitting in, you know, slightly dirty, maybe crowded seats and stuff like that. Those were just people that were just there for the baseball. But Vex thought that if you had families come, children, women, you know, old people, young people, whatever, and they hear about this person that is shooting off fireworks and hiring clowns and doing all these things, they might get curious. And then they're going to come and sort of experience that. But then they're going to be forced to sit through the baseball game. And they might then sort of pick up a love for the game or they might come back and be like, well, what's he going to do now? And then sort of little by little, they'll come to appreciate the nuances and intricacies of baseball. And so really what he was doing had a purpose. It wasn't simply just to be outrageous. It was to build that fan base. And the fans really reacted to him. Just the fact that they had been neglected for so long. And now here was somebody who put them first and foremost and was just – doing everything he could to find ways to both A, entertain them, and B, and I think people forget this, get the Indians into the World Series as quickly as possible. Vec's shenanigans would not have worked if the Indians had simply stayed a terrible team. Vec needed the Indians to win, but he also thought that, well, I, while the Indians are winning, the fans can also have fun. So you put together that combination, the winning field team on the field and then the sort of sideshows during the downtime and you just have a powder cake that just kind of exploded and still exists in in american fandom i think that anytime you go to a baseball game now it doesn't matter where you are minor leagues, college whatever you're going to see traces of vex fingerprints you're going to see it every time there's a cap dance t-shirt cannon whatever that all comes from bill Vex's philosophy of what a baseball experience should be like yeah no and yeah
0: like you said his mark is, is all over the game and that season was certainly a perfect storm for, for more reasons than one, but it was, it was cool being, you know, having my minor league background, just seeing him trying to go after that attendance record and, and yeah. all things that, um, you know, that he was, uh, was trying out and the people he would invite to the games. And uh, so that, that was just something I was able to, to really relate to. So that was, that was really fun to, to follow that uh, particular storyline. But, um, you know and moving to specifically the, the 48 season in that World Series why was this so important for baseball and, and really America too?
1: well I think that um, there's a couple of reasons I mean the the most standard reason is that the Indians were the first integrated team to win the World Series which in itself is a monumental achievement but it's the way that the Indians won the World Series the Indians, had struggled since 1920, the last time they won the World Series, to get past the likes of sort of powerhouse clubs like the Boston Red Sox, the New York Yankees, the Detroit Tigers. They would always be sort of neck and neck with them. And then they would just falter at the end. And Bill Veeck had this idea that if we're gonna beat the Yankees and the Red Sox, then we have to look for places, we have to look in places that they're not looking. And that at the time was the Negro Leagues. And so the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, they added Jackie Robinson. They already had a pretty solid team. The Indians were a sixth-place team whenever Larry Doby joined. And really, it was a neck-and-neck playoffs in 1948 between the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Indians. Every game mattered. And the addition of Doby and Page to the Indians were what made the difference. If you take either of them off, um, the Indians simply probably finish in third or possibly even fourth place it really did go to show that if you got rid of your prejudices even if you were squeamish about the idea of integration that you were going to help your ball club and you were going to you know make money and cultivate your fandom and all this other sorts of stuff and it also showed like larry doby in 19 in 1948 world series in game four he hits this mammoth home run off of the Boston Braves' ace, Johnny Sane. It proved to be the winning home run of that game. The pitcher for the Indians was a guy named Steve Gromick. He was kind of a mid-rotation guy, not, you know, not a star by any means, and he just very luckily got the call to start the, that World Series game. He pitches out of his mind. He only allows one run that game, and it wouldn't have been enough were it not for that Larry Doby home run, which was proved to be the winning run. And Gromek afterward goes into the clubhouse, spots Doby, and just wraps his arms around him, just in utter joy that Doby has given him this this win that still defines his legacy. And so that picture of those two men, Gromek and Doby, went across newspapers the next day around the country. And... African-American newspapers in particular were very um, quick to see the significance of that photo. It wasn't simply that these two teammates had helped each other win a game. It was that if you integrate, didn't have to be a baseball team, your workforce, your, your factory, whatever it was, um, Guys that were perhaps uncertain about it or didn't know will eventually sort of, you know, fritter away their prejudices once they start to know these people and work together as a team. And I mean, I think that's a very simplistic way of thinking about it because I think as we see later, there are still problems for decades after that. But that photo itself shows the promise that could happen if integration occurs. And so it was a very symbolically resonant team, particularly in African American newspapers at that time. I mean, it, it they really they really got on the significance of of um, both the fact that Doby and Page were the the X factor that got the Indians into the World Series and the fact that, you know, giving Doby the chance to show what he could do led to his acceptance.
0: It's such a, a beautiful image, you know, and just pure joy resonating on both of their faces. And you can almost feel, you know, the the weight of of all that tension just kind of fade off right, right in that image. And I think it just shows that, you know, as a society we're we're just better together. Um, So that was, that was pretty cool. And if there was one game from that season, if you had had to choose just one that you could go back and watch and attend in
1: person, which Mm -hmm. one would you pick? Oh, man. I mean, it was such a crazy season. Um, In the regular season, I would pick the game on August 20th, 1948. That was Satchel Paige's start in Cleveland against the Chicago White Sox. Um, It shattered the attendance record for a game in in Major League Baseball. and You have to imagine sort of 80,000 some people in the stands that game. And the Indians are tied for first with the Red Sox and the Yankees. It's a three-way tie. It's a huge game. And Page pitches a shutout. Um, it won, it wins one to nothing on a, uh, a hit from Larry Doby. And so really it's the first game where a pair of black teammates sort of band together and, and provide a win almost single-handedly for their club. It's a really sort of significant game. But just seeing Satchel Page at that time, he was such a phenomenon when he came into Major League Baseball that fans were literally tearing out the turnstiles to try to see him. Um, so the excitement that would have been around anytime he was on the mound would have been unbelievable. And I think in the World Series, I would have actually chosen game five. That's one of the few games the Indians lose. Um, Bob Feller, the Indians, uh, It is, it was for a long time the heaviest attended game in, in baseball history. There were 86,000 people in the stadium that day. And Bob Feller was on the mound to close out the series, kind of almost like a thing of destiny, something that Feller was, was, was fated to do. Um, and he kind of blows it. And it's just a really exciting back-and-forth game. And... I think you get to see sort of, you know, the drama of Feller trying desperately to to live up to his lofty fate and, and falling short of it, followed by then Satchel Page coming into the game and fulfilling a dream that had been denied to him for almost a quarter century, and that is pitching in a major league world series. So you get to see sort of, you know, two legends um Two legends, uh, one fall, one failing, and one succeeding at the same time, and so yeah, it would have been a really interesting game to be around. Simply also to see how Indians fans reacted to it, (laughs) because I imagine a lot of them were like, "Oh, we're done now." Probably
0: not too well, right? No, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's great. Well, uh, Luke, this has been an awesome conversation, and I'll I'll leave you the last word here. uh, You know, there there anything that you want folks uh, to walk away with? You know, after reading this.
1: I mean, I, I think that the, the thing, what I really wanted to try to get to this book is that I feel like the way that Major League Baseball commemorates integration is very heavily focused on one individual. Um, every day in, in April, we have Jackie Robinson Day. Everybody wears his uniform, his uniform is it's retired across the league. And that is all very well deserved. And I think that Major League Baseball should continue to do that. But I think that we also should think about the people that came after Robinson. Um, I, I've often thought that that on July 5th, which is the day that Larry Doby integrated the American League, there should be a Larry Doby day. And that day should be dedicated to thinking about the pioneers that came after and how their stories are quite different than Robinson's story. They're each unique in its own, but they're equally as meaningful. And that I think that we have room in our sort of cultural conversation about baseball for more than one integration story. And so uh, you had mentioned that I tried to write this book like a novel and that is correct. I wanted it to be an exciting book that kind of got readers uh, flipping the pages and things like that, because I think that what has been lost with Larry Doby is his narrative. And so I wanted to just sort of tell that story for all of his excited, excitement, its meaningfulness, and like, you know, just to, to, to get fans invested in it. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I would hope, that, that we can sort of think about uh, integration stories beyond the one that we generally talk about every year. Yeah.
0: Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. And uh, you can go and pick yourself up a copy. Of our team and any local bookstore online, all over the internet, I would highly recommend that you do so. And Luke, thanks again, man. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. That wraps up today's conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please give our podcast a like and share it with your friends. And if you have a baseball related story to tell that you would like to have featured on the show, Drop us a line in the comments, or you can send a direct message to our Facebook page. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, I'm Jim Tunison, and this is For Love of the Game.